Hi there. Good morning, afternoon, or night, depending on when you're listening. I'm Jared McCormick, and I'm excited to have you here for our 18th episode of the MFA Writers Podcast. Although we've grown and learned a lot over these last 36 weeks, we are definitely still growing and we are still learning, both of which you can help us with. You can help us learn by letting us know what you like about the podcast and how we might improve. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com or a direct message on Twitter and Instagram. You can help us grow by spreading the word amongst your friends. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell the people in your MFA program about it or the people in your undergraduate class or tell your family and friends. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and help us spread information on those platforms. And you can help us both learn and grow by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or another podcasting platform. It only takes a minute, and then you can look forward to us reading it before a podcast episode, like I'm about to do right now. This review is from TN Downs, who wrote, A++++, excellent pod by generous host and producers, featuring direct Q&A with MFA candidates and grads. Useful and insightful interviews offer perspective and direct info, often missing from program sites. In the age of COVID without the benefit of AWP in person, this podcast feels essential in the lead up to MFA program application season. Thanks to TN Downs for that, and thank you for listening every two weeks. We really do love building this community with you. Enjoy the episode. MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Danielle P. Williams, a Pushcart-nominated poet, essayist, and spoken word artist from Columbia, South Carolina. She strives to give voice to underrepresented cultures, expanding on the narratives and experiences of her Black and Chamorro cultures. She's an MFA candidate in poetry at George Mason University an editorial coordinator for Poetry Daily, the poetry editor for So to Speak, and a 2019 Alan Choose MFA Travel Fellow. Danielle is a 2020 Writing Workshop Fellow for The Watering Hole and 2021 Langston Hughes Fellow for Palm Beach Poetry Festival. Her poems were selected for the 2020 Literary Award in Poetry from Ninth Letter. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Hobart, Juked Magazine, The Pinch, Baron Magazine, and many more. Danielle has brought two poems to read today. The Valley of the Laddie. I lie and say that I'm a resident to get the local price. What I really mean to say is I am native, but $45 is better than $90 and I've already paid my weight and loss. This is the first time I see Guahan this way. I feel the heat of August on my skin as our boat bides along Tolofofo in Ogum. Two villages, one river, the calm middle between jungle and ancestry. As we glide through the water, we throw breadcrumbs to bait greedy plump catfish. Our guide weaves me a tiara of palms, places it on my head. He weaves me a rose and places it in my left hand. I look up and gush at the terrain. Such lush green tropics swelling into the sky. 
My cousin tells me she tries to visit once a year to feel closer to the ancestors. As we approach the Chamorro village, I am taught how to ask the Tautamona for permission. Ancestors, can I pass through your land? We step off the boat and watch as canoes are handcrafted by Uliteo. Men and lava lavas, bare skin to show us what they're made of. They show us weaving like I've never seen before. Katot, rice gift baskets, balakak, fanny pack baskets, hagug for your voyage off island, the Chamorro Tupperware of baskets, baskets like crowns on the heads of women. We're taught how to make fire, how it starts from palm and stone. We see the ancient laddie stones lined up and parallel as if to say, you can thrive here. It is here I realize these stone-shaped people. Laddie stones are home and shelter and altar. Cratered limestone clutched in my hand like coral or something that used to be. 16th Street Neighborhood Protest At 4.50, we carried the drums to the front of the house. We lined the congas like armor, sat tall and proud behind them, our palms messaging to the cowskin heads, the piercing pops and slaps, the heated rhythms of our revolution. It felt as if our ancestors willed the beats themselves. By 5.15, the rain came. We stopped our rhythms, ran the drums inside so that they wouldn't be doomed to ruin like the rest of us. We joined the others, kneeled curbside in the pouring rain, every neighbor at the tips of their lawn yelling to the passing cars, pumping their fists, pumping their signs in the air high as if they thought God could read them from 16th Street. And the church bells were supposed to ring at 545 in solidarity, but they didn't. And we didn't much care for long. America was still going to hear our songs, our cries. We shook bells and punched the sky again and again because our lives depended on it. Danielle, thank you for reading that and thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, these poems, like individually on their own, are super powerful and moving and interesting, but. For me, like taking them together just added like a weight to it as a reader. Um, I started thinking about like this so-called American dream, like this this idea that anything is possible in America, that it's like a shining city on a hill or the land of opportunity, all these like hackneyed ideas that sound nice, but at least in my opinion, don't hold up upon further inspection. You can't really like call yourself the land of opportunity if you demonize anyone who tries to come here to pursue that opportunity. And you you can't say that anything is possible in America if a large portion of the population is afraid of the police, for instance. Um, and, and that reality is made like all the more visceral when I read your descriptions of this protest in the States alongside the descriptions of life in the Mariana Islands and in Guam, which is an American territory. But like in most American territories, the people there are hardly treated like citizens. Your bio says you strive to give voice to underrepresented cultures, expanding on the narratives and experiences of your Black and Chamorro cultures. Do you mind telling us a bit about your background and like your family history and maybe just a bit about Chamorro culture for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah. Um, well, I guess starting about, you know, kind of where I grew up, I, for the most part, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, my dad was in the Army for 20 years, so we got stationed in Fort Jackson and we kind of just stayed there. Um, after my parents split and, um, 
So South Carolina in itself is a very interesting place to grow up as a person of color, especially. Um, I ended up going to a performing arts boarding school for my junior and senior year in high school for viola because <laughs> I'm a classically trained violist. So music, music always plays music and sound always plays such a role in my writing in general, just because my background in music. Let's see. My dad's family is from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, and my grandpa was actually the first black uh, chief of police in Trenton, New Jersey. And um, so my family comes from a long line of kind of social justice. And, you know, my um, my uncle and my great grandma, they uh, brought a case to the Supreme Court for racial discrimination. And I happened 10 years before board Brown versus Board of Education and set the president for that case. So um, I say all that to say, like, I come from a family who was loud and opinionated and demands to be heard. <laughs> um, so I get that. Like, that's that's the dynamic of my dad's family and my mom. My grandma's from Guam and my um, grandpa is from the island of Saipan and Rota, which is all in the Mariana Islands. But Guam is a U.S. Te- US territory. Um, Saipan is a commonwealth. Uh, it's it's a weird, you know, weird thing. Um because, you know, my mom is one of six and her parents chose not to pass on the language. You know, they wanted to be as American as possible. My grandpa was in the military. A lot of, you know, men, especially on island in Guam, they were signing up because they thought that being in the military was going to make them more American. And so all of these Chamorro people are, you know, going to the, the states and reestablishing their lives and not passing on the language or the culture. So a lot of my writing is me learning for myself. I'm teaching my mom a lot of stuff. I'm teaching my cousins and my sister, you know, a lot of my family, a lot of stuff that I'm learning and researching as I'm writing my poetry, which is kind of cool. And I, you know, I write uh, creative nonfiction as well. And so I'm like exploring a lot of where I come from for the first time. So that's what makes it very exciting and makes it kind of endless. Like I write a lot because I'm still learn and learn new things every day. So I feel like I almost won't won't run out of, (laughs) you know, content. (laughs) I mean, that seems like a really common experience um, for like first generation people to um, like try to assimilate, you know, like whether that's like a personal choice or like a community that's kind of enforcing that on them to like turn away from the language, turn away from the culture. So was there like a moment that you remember where you thought like, oh no, I want to reconnect with this. And like, uh, this really moves me. This really inspires me. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was when I was applying to MFA programs Um, There was some like George Mason's application, like I knew that they had like different funding opportunities and different way, like different, they had great research opportunities and stuff. And, you know, a lot of like when I joined the program, they have a travel grant um, for the shoe center um, and they give you $5,000 to like you write about where you want to travel and what you're going to write about. And, you know, I hadn't been to Guam or Saipan in 16 years just because, you know, the flight itself is like 20. $2,500. $2,500. Like it's expensive. And the last time I went with my family, like was like many, many Christmases ago. And I can only imagine how much that cost them. So just the ability to go back, you know, as an indigenous culture, a lot of the language has kind of just been erased. Um, there is no really true original ancient Chamorro language right now. It's very much a mix of, 
you know, over like there's a span of 400 years where they're colonized and oppressed by the Japanese, the Spanish, the German, like, you know, so it's like uh, the culture has been impacted in so many different ways. It's not true to its original form. And so I think for me, just the idea that if I don't learn about this, if I don't research this, if I don't understand this, then who else is going to write about it? Who else is going to pass it down? Like, I can't be the only person in my family that's teaching my family about our culture. Like there are other people who don't have that person in their family that's going to educate them. And for me, like I have such a unique experience as a black woman. And when I walk out, you know, in the world, most people see a black woman or, you know, a woman of mixed race. And, but that, you know, first they see me as a black woman. And so it's like, I can always operate in that, but me coming back, I'm, I don't really operate as a Chamorro woman day to day because the only Chamorro people I'm around are my family. So it's a different experience. It's like, I really have to try. I don't have to really sit and learn about being black, you know? Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, and I, and that, that thing that you said about like kind of discovering this for the first time, it's one of the things I wrote down when I read it was like, there's just this beautiful feeling of life and discovery in this poem. Like it really felt to me like the speaker was discovering something that had always been a part of her. So I'm glad that my reading was right. I mean, there's some really beautiful lines too. Like um, when the cousin says that um, she tries to visit once a year to feel closer to the ancestors. And then that moment when the speaker asks ancestors, can I pass through your land? I'm curious just how important is having a connection to your ancestral history to you as a person but also, which you've already talked about a little bit, but also as a writer, I'm curious, like, what is it about that connection that really inspires and motivates you as a writer? Yeah. Well, one thing that I like try to understand and tackle in my writing is my relationship to God, knowing that Christianity is an imposed religion, knowing that, you know, probably my ancestors in Africa, they, they you know, they had their own religion. They have their own practices, their own way that they're connected to the world same way as like in my Chamorro culture, I can I can see it because people are still practicing it. Um, I'm more connected to it. And it's kind of a common thing. You know, you don't just go into the jungle, you know, without asking for permission. There are certain times where the Tautamona, which is means people before time, the Tautamona come out and they're dwelling in, in their atmosphere and people go inside. Like it's it's very much a respect thing. And knowing that we all come from this one place, I feel like is super important. And being able to learn about that was something that was super important to me. And and that's like the connecting things that I find, like the, tenec- the connection to being like to your ancestors. Like I find that in both of my cultures, it's extremely important and sought out after. And so it's like a lot of times I kind of get at that and the argument of if I believe in God, am I upsetting my ancestors? Like, you know, like that different, like that tension between religion, imposed religion and what we as people, indigenous people inherently believed and were stripped of. It's, it's a conversation that I have all the time with myself. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're having it with me because obviously this is different from my experience and it's, it's so interesting to hear. And it totally makes sense to me how you could feel that dichotomy and like push and pull within yourself and how maybe writing could be a way to like sort that out. Um, So, so when did you write the Valley of the Lati? Was that during your trip to um, Guam and um, the Mariana Islands? So I went to Guam summer of 2019. I want to say I wrote this poem 
maybe in my like fall workshop, like right, like semester, either fall or spring. And the Valley of the Laddie is actually a place. It's like a excursion, if you will. Uh, it was something that I knew I wanted to do the whole time I was in Guam. I was in Guam for about a month. Um, and I ended up doing it like the very last couple of days um, with my cousin. And there, the the water is right, the river is right in between Tolofofo and Ogum. So there's literally two villages and then one river. And so it's very literal, my poem. Um, and it really is just taking you through. Like, you know, they had, luckily our tour boat wasn't really full. There was like a couple and then like a little kid. And then it was me and my cousin and they had guides, um, you know, weaving you the little poems of stuff and placing it on you. And they gave you like bread to throw to the catfish. And, you know, you're just going along and seeing it. And then you pull up to this ancient Chamorro village that is a representation of what Chamorro life would have been in ancient times and preserved and run every day by people who come in and treat it as if, you know, that's the day they're in and that's the life they're living. Uh, from what they wear to the practices, like I said in the poem, um, I didn't butcher the tomorrow because I don't speak tomorrow <laughs> and I'm learning and it's very hard with pronunciation, but the way that they did it is they said the permission prayer basically in tomorrow and then they repeated it to us in English so that we could say it. Um, so in that actual moment, I wasn't saying it. So I figured it's appropriate when I read it. If I don't have to read it, <laughs> that's my own choice. Um, but it was it was so cool because these laddie stones represent strength. They're very much literally a pillar for Chamorro culture. Uh, they work in structures, on buildings. They're they're limestone. They're like they're like columns essentially. They hold up houses. Um, so many different things are used in a lot of the architecture and everything. And they're just so important. And they they signify strength. Um, but I mean, obviously, time goes on, nature erases as well. And so if you spot one, then it's like you find one. Like we I came across one in, in the jungle in Saipan, a laddie stone. And we were like, oh my gosh, it was huge. It was probably like eight feet. Um, but it was like hidden under like a whole bunch of like vines and stuff like that. And you just don't really see it anymore. Um, and except for like, there's a park where they have laddie stones in Guam. And then obviously at, you know, the Valley of the Laddie, it's just in rows. So when you see one of these um, laddie stones in the jungle, how old are they? How long have they been there? It was really early. Like it had to be like, or like either 900, definitely before Spanish colonization, which is in the 1500s. So you can see how that would represent strength. And I imagine seeing that like in the wild would be really powerful. And then to come back home, you know, you talk about being a black indigenous woman raised in the South and, you know, being constantly aware of your place. Um, so how has growing up in the South and growing up with family history of like, like activism, how has that affected your writing, you think? So I remember I had to be like either nine or 10. And I think it was like the anniversary for Hedgepath Williams because Hedgepath Williams, they actually have a, a middle school in Trenton too, um, named after them. But Hedgepath Williams, we did like a reenactment um, of the picture that they took 
of uh, my uncle Leon and um, <laughs> and like the same. So we did a reenactment. So I like since we were little kids, we like pretended to be them. And it was kind of cool. Like I felt like I was participating in history, which was kind of cool, which was like as a nine, 10 year old, like it's such a like weird concept. But like I've always kind of worked out my feelings through writing stories I've never really like had journals or diaries, like in that sense, like I always feel like writing about my own feelings in that way is like, I could be writing, about, like, I want to write about something bigger than myself sometimes. Like, I feel like I want to avoid the, like the little frivolous, you know, things in my head and go for the big things that like keep popping up in my head. And for, and for me, it's just, I guess, awareness, I guess knowing that I have a voice and seeing other people who have voices, like it became very important to me. And I feel like that was definitely the case more so in college. I feel like in high school, there weren't a lot of resources for me. And and I went to boarding school for two years, but my focus was music. I wasn't really writing as much. I kept my writing more so to myself, but I watched a lot of spoken word. Like I watched a lot of spoken word videos on YouTube. And that's how I connected because I felt like in high school, in public, high school in, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, we're reading Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost. And that's the only, that's the only, you know, association with poetry that I have. And it's not, that's, that's not it for me. That's not connecting with me personally. The second poem you read, 16th Street Neighborhood Protest, definitely has that um, kind of activist feel to it, obviously, um, because it's, it's about a protest. So could you just tell us about that poem a bit and the inspiration for it? Yeah. Um, so like I said, I played the viola and I even went for undergrad as a viola performance major before I realized, like, what am I going to do with that? And now I'm a poet. So it's like, I guess, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, um, I started experimenting with more music and I found myself in war percussion ensemble and I felt like I really connected to drums. Like I really felt the ritual and the rhythm. I really felt it in the same way that I felt poetry And obviously, like the history of drumming as ritual, you know, as warning, as healing, you know, in many cultures, um, it always like resonates with me. And one of my really good friends, you know, his family, they live on 16th Street. um, In D.C. Yeah, in D.C. Um, And he told me he told me about it um, because of COVID. Like I had gone to one big protest protest. But after that, I I kind of was like very overwhelmed and didn't want to be exposed because it was still the beginning of COVID. And I wanted to be there and felt like I needed to be there. But after being there once, I was like, okay, I don't want to endanger myself and other people like that. Um, So this protest was a neighborhood protest. And so 16th Street is huge. Um, So it's literally just a long road and everyone's out on their lawns. And like main, like really major, like traffic goes through there. You're going through D.C., and so uh, my friend's dad, he also plays drums and they're all great musicians. And he played with me, you know, when I was an undergrad too. And so he said, uh, you know, while we're out there chanting, we're also going to, you know, move people and try to connect with people with music. Um, sometimes people listen more. Sometimes people are tired of yelling and screaming and don't want to listen to that, but maybe something else could could get them to stop and listen and process our pain through a different way, you know? And that's what I love about drumming. Like I really feel it in my body. And I remember 
<laughs> it started raining in the middle of us drumming. And like, <laughs> these were my congas too. And, and so we're like running the drums in the house because we don't want them to be damaged, you know? Um, and so from then on, but we drummed for about like 30 minutes from then on, we're just kneeling in the rain with our fists up as cars are honking and neighbors are angry. Everyone's at the top of their lawns, you know, all types of people, not just black people. Um, and it was great. I mean, it like, it was obviously the rain sucked, but it was definitely a moment. And at first I was hesitant about going just because I don't know. I wasn't sure. You never really know how protests are going to end up. And because it wasn't no neighborhood protest, I think I was more likely to go just because I knew regardless, I'd be with, you know, my family there, you know, my friends are extension of my family. So, you know, I've known his family for so many years. I felt safe and I felt surrounded by love and music. And I felt like it was a joyous protest. Like people were stopping and listening and smiling. And it was, it was a great feeling. There, there is definitely a feeling of like hope and, and, and joy in this poem, I think, even though it has like, obviously the subject matter is, is, um, hard to think about, oh, but yeah. you know, I, even when I picked up this poem and I read the title, I had this, you know, question popped in my head that made me incredibly sad, which was, is this poem about the 16th street protests in DC after the murder of George Floyd? Or is it about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing by the Ku Klux Klan in 1963? And I thought, you know, it's both. It is, yeah. right? It's about it, both of them, and it's about every um, death in between. Right. So uh, I'm curious how much the past summer and the protests you attended and the Black Lives Matter movement has entered into your thought process when writing and entered into the subject matter of your poems, or if that's something that's always been there um I would definitely like to say it's always kind of been there um I think I think it largely has to do with the fact that you know one of my first introductions to poetry was spoken word and I could really feel you know what the poet was saying I could really I felt like I was there with them and I was in the motion and I was I was feeling the anger with them and it was so powerful and so I always take reading so seriously because I want to be able to touch people. And I feel like when you can convey something in a way where it gets someone to step out of the perspective and really understand, that's powerful. And I mean, in college, I had more support like I, um, with my sorority sisters who knew I wrote poetry and like I would have friends. I would read some poems because I was, you know, creative writing minor and they'd hear about events on campus and they'd be like, oh, read for this. Or they'd be like, oh, you'll be perfect for this. And so I started, you know, performing my poems different places on campus, started going to open mics, you know, doing different things like that. Um, after I graduated college, you know, I started getting more into spoken word. And because I feel like I put so much pressure on myself in my poems to really investigate Black bodies and you know, the culture of Black bodies in America and across the world and Indigenous people. I, I try to find other ways that I can kind of disconnect and approach poetry in a different way that's more personal and more for me. And so I do that through my music. 
So I record, like I have two spoken word EPs and it's, it's largely about, you know, me processing through my feelings, my depression, my anxiety, dating. Like it's, you know, like everyday things that I feel like as a 26 year old, you know, black and Shamar woman, I would hope that those are the things that I'm worrying about, but like largely in my poetry to explore is like the bigger deal. Um, well, you know, protest in like by definition is an act of hope, right? Yes. That things are going to change and get better. Um, and I love that like you were able to like look at it through the lens of music, which is so joyful. And then the idea that writing and reading your writing can also be a form of protest and a form like an, an, an activity that moves the world towards change. I just, I love that idea. I love the work you're doing. I love listening to you read your poems. You, <laughs> you did a great job. So if you don't mind, let's talk a bit about the MFA program Yeah. Um, at George Mason. Um, from what I read about it, it offers concentrations in three genres, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Um, and it tip- typically takes three years to complete. According to the website, the curriculum is designed to deliver a balance of scholarship and production with a generous amount of electives so that students can chart their own path. Um, what made you want to pursue an MFA and how did you end up at George Mason? Yeah, um, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2017, like May of 2017. Um, my dad lives here. My brother lives here. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, Um but I had gotten a job and I was like, okay, I'll figure it out. And I had just really gone through a time where I was writing a lot. Like I was really, really writing a lot. And a couple of my friends like catching up with me after college, they're just like, when are you going to have a book? Like I, I, I really want to buy your poems, read your poems. And so I had written about in the span of like four months, I had written probably like a hundred poems, like just, and so I decided to self-publish and kind of just get my work out there, but it felt good. And it felt like I could do this again. I liked this. I realized that I liked editing. I liked organizing like words and concepts. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I don't really know what I want to do with my life, but I do know that I'm writing a lot and I want to be a better writer. And if I can find a school to write at, that I don't have to pay for, then that's great. <laughs> then that's what I'll do. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a great um, mindset to have if you're pursuing an MFA. Uh, I want to get, I want to be a better writer, right? I want that time to, to dedicate to my writing and to improve my writing. Not, I want to be a, you know, famous writer who's going to make a million bucks, you know. And that's where people, yeah, that's where people get lost. Like, you know, like I'm fully aware that I am a poet, like, and that like, that's not necessarily like, you know, a six figure job, you know. <laughs> um, I'm doing it because I really feel like I have so many stories that people have never heard especially coming from a background of like what, like my background, I like there aren't many people who have the same stories that I have to tell. And I think people would want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. And not you're a poet, but you're also nonfiction writer. Yes, yes. So have you had the chance in the George Mason program to work uh, across genre at all? Yeah. So one thing I love about, I mean, I love George Mason. I, I say this all the time and I feel like, I'm always a great spokesmodel because I really do love it. And I was so hesitant. Like I only applied to two, two programs and I, um, and so I was kind of nervous about it. Um, (laughs) 
And so I applied for one away and one here. And I was like, okay, if I get into George Mason, then at least I'm here. At least I'm already settled. You know, um, it's not so new. It's not so big of a change. And so I got in. I wasn't funding my first semester, but my second semester I was. And up until then, the whole three years, I'm finished in May, which is crazy to say that it's been three years. Um, but I, uh, I'm i able to get my tuition waiver through working for Poetry Daily. So in the same way that you would have an assistantship and be a creative writing teacher or a teacher and get your funding by teaching when George Mason acquired Poetry Daily, it opened up the possibilities for MFA students to work on that level of publishing. And I love working for Poetry Daily. And um, like that's run with our, some of our professors are in charge of that as well. So it's like, we're working in so many different capacities with our faculty, which is, which is great. Well, tell us about Poetry Daily. Like what's some of the work that you're doing there? How much, yeah. like what's the workload like? Um, any information you have about that? Cause I'm interested. Yeah. So um, Poetry Daily, um, we have, a poem every single day, <laughs> daily. Um, and it's, you know, an online contemporary journal of what's new. We, you know, we get, we read cover to cover, new journals, new books, presses send us, you know, advanced copies and books that just came out and we read them and we put them up for editorial review and we have conversations about poems and how they're moving us and how they'll impact our audience and how they're different from the one yesterday. You know, we try to get translations and, you know, writers of color and make sure it's a variety that really represents the wide range of contemporary poetry that's coming out today. Because there's so much and there's like, there's not one type of poetry reader. There are all different types of poetry readers and, you know, different interests and aesthetics. And so we try to kind of get a little bit of everything for everyone. Um, but my job specifically is um, I work on a, a team of two to do the daily newsletters. So every other week I do the newsletters um, that go out every day, which means, you know, even when I'm on break, even on Christmas, on holidays, like I'm still making sure everyone gets their poem. <laughs> I uh, do the social media graphics. I do sponsorships, fundraising, uh, help with events, you know, help facilitate conversations about poetry with our classes that we have because we have grad classes and undergrads who work with us and help we help them understand poetry and how to read poetry in a different way, which is really cool. And they get to interact with a lot of the new stuff that we're getting to read as well, which is cool. It sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a great job. And like, you know, I, like who doesn't love to get the newest like books? Like, yeah, like, yeah. okay. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so then you said that that includes funding. Is is that covering like your tuition and you're getting some kind of stipend as well? Yeah. So, yeah, I have a tuition waiver and then I also get paid like a regular paycheck. Um, and then, um, so to speak, which is a literary journal that's run out of George Mason. We also I also get a stipend from that because it's an MFA run lit journal. And so I get a stipend for being poetry editor for that as well. It's a small stipend. How many students get these um, positions at either Poetry Daily or so to speak? So well, we also have like um, Stillhouse Press that's run out of George Mason, which is a that's an opportunity as well. And then obviously teaching. Um, but I think the last time I checked, the program was like maybe 70 percent funded. Yeah, the website says 65%. Oh, yeah. So yeah, around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is really good because, you know, we don't really have like... In my cohort, like my year, there are 
eight poets. And, you know, obviously they're more like they're different numbers in different genres. But what's cool about that also is like, I know you asked this earlier, but we are allowed like some MFA programs don't allow you to take out of drama classes, but I specifically applied to programs knowing that I could, because while I love poetry, I also am very interested in, you know, growing my skills in writing creative nonfiction, maybe even fiction one day. I don't know. It kind of intimidates me. (laughs) I can barely like keep track of all the facts in my head. So to make up new ones is like scary to me. (laughs) Well, I'm a fiction writer and and poetry scares me. So yeah, Yeah, but I've, I've had like the the great opportunity of taking two nonfiction classes um, with Kyoko Mori, which who's a great writer. Um, if you haven't read any of her work, she's great. And one of them, and they were very um, particular to like what I'm writing about. Like she's, you know, she's a Japanese woman writing up and she writes largely about, you know, her culture. And so one of the, <laughs> the first class I took was boundaries um, writing about family which I feel like is important because like some people feel like they can't write about family that they're shy to. I'm not a shy person. I tell my family if they don't want to be written about, (laughs) watch what they say maybe, or I don't know. Like, you know, I have the power to use my words in the way that I want. And, you know, (laughs) look out. (laughs) Right. And then the other class that I took last semester was like home and away writing about home and about places that are far, but feel close to you, which was definitely, you know, right on the nose for what I'm trying to write. So, well, that's cool. It's, it's, it's nice. I think when programs allow you to work outside your genre and to take like, um, some different classes. Um, and, and it sounds like George Mason does that before we move on from funding. I want to ask, so like two thirds of students are funded. Um, a few of them get these positions at, uh, poetry daily or so to speak, or other, um, literature magazines or institutions, but are the majority of people teaching who are funded? Do you know that? And, um, do you have a sense, does everyone get the same stipend no matter what position they get? And if you don't mind, like how much is the stipend? Yeah. Across the board, it's the same. Everyone gets to pay the same amount. Um, I feel like it went up, but last time I checked, like last year was like 16000 Um, which, you know, grad students are very much underpaid for the amount of work that we do. But that being say, said, I'm very much grateful for like the work that I'm having to do, like being solely poetry. <laughs> like I, I definitely recognize that I am in a unique position. I'll say most people are teaching right now. There are three fellowships for Poetry Daily. I think maybe two or three people for Stillhouse Press, which is, you know, a press that we have on George Mason. And the just to clarify, the lit journals that we have, they're not a part of the stipend. They're just like an additional, like, if you want to apply for this. Um, so they're very small stipend, like $500 a semester, just like a scholarship. That's how they're labeled, like little scholarships, which I love to do. And I know once I graduate, I definitely still want to be involved in a lit magazine because they're great. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the best experiences that MFA students can get is working for a lit magazine, just reading as many submissions as possible. I also read on on the website that there's something called the MFA student fellowships that grant funding for the thesis year without work requirements. Do you know how many students receive those? Yes. So, um, it's usually one per genre, but for poetry, there's two. And it's it's a great opportunity. Um, it was great 
kind of applying in my cohort because we're very much a family and our professors are always like, you guys are cute because we very much love each other. And um, we all have such great ideas and we're all such distinct writers and write about such different things and challenge each other. So like nobody was really upset when, you know, other people got it. Um, We were all kind of rooting for each other, which is nice. But um, so basically, yeah, you get funded to just focus and write on your, write, write your thesis. You don't have to worry about teaching or poetry daily or it's just more time to write. Great. Yeah, it is great. (laughs) So that's open for anyone to apply to it. And then um, they choose a few students each year. Yeah. All the all of the faculty sit down and and read all the applications and they come to a vote. I think it's they it's like majority. Yeah, they vote on it. Well, I want to come back to you. A thing you said about just the community at George Mason, because I know um, you had told me in an email that you had some hesitancy about going to an MFA um, as a Black Indigenous woman. Like, so what has that been like? Um, how's the community been? Have you felt comfortable there? Yeah. Well, you never know. Like going into a new space, I'm always very cautious just because I don't know who's going to really be looking out for me. And that's just, you know, that's just an everyday reality. Um, But I will say that, like, especially because the MFA is such a white space, um, you know, academia in itself, you know, it's just a white space, you know. And so when it came down to it, it's just, am I going to allow myself to not do it because I'm going to be uncomfortable? Or am I going to allow or am I going to let my, me being uncomfortable fuel me writing and like still be able to get better? Like I didn't want that to kind of keep me from applying just because I knew I, I could potentially be the only person of color in that space. I think I liked the fact that the the cohorts were smaller. So at least like maybe it would be better quality people or like people that are more understanding. And I will say that, you know, my cohort, I, <laughs> I always joke with them like, they are the first people that I've ever like been like, oh, this is what an ally is. They will fight for me. Like, <laughs> like I, I, who was it? I went to, um, anyways, I went to, a, I think it was, I think it's Angie Thomas. And she says, um, you know, allies, like you can't be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. Like you have to like, okay, you're an ally, but are you going to be out there fighting for me? Are you with me? Are you going to be on the front lines with me? Like, you know, are you just going to talk or are you, you know, are you about it? Like, are you, you know, (laughs) and they very much are. And I appreciate them. And I feel very safe in my space. And like, we all kind of know that though we have a lot of differences, we, we all are still curious and thinking about poetry in these ways and trying to navigate in these spaces. I, I very much acknowledge the fact that I have a rare experience because in talking with other people of color and MFA, you know, programs, most of them are like, don't do it. Like, you know, it's not worth your sanity or your, they've had worse, worse experiences. Um, and so I'm so thankful that that's not the case because I love my faculty. You know, my poetry professors are so great. I know that I can, you know, lean on them and they're there for me. And it's really a great feeling. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I get so excited. Like, I feel like a, a spokesperson, like for like, I get so excited, like genuinely excited. Well, we need to celebrate the places that are doing a good job. Yeah. Because there are too many that aren't. So I think, I think it's great. So it's, I love that the community within the program is good, but I also want to talk a little bit about opportunities in and around DC. Um, there was this thing on the website. I saw this um, partnership with something called Watershed Lit. 
which is an organization, according to the website, that organizes a significant book festival, an independent press, a daily online poetry anthology, a center for international writers, an annual conference, a project focused on the teaching of writing, and two highly regarded literary journals, which I think we've touched on a few of those along the way here. But if you could just tell us what is Watershed Lit and just tell us about some of these opportunities in and around um, George Mason in the D.C. area. Yeah, I'm laughing because they just they just named that building like (laughs) um, they just kind of put that together because they've they've been doing a lot of construction on George Mason and they they just finished our new building. Um, And so they wanted to name it something because that's where they're housing, you know, still house press poetry daily. That's where they're going to house all those offices. And so it's going to be like this building for all the opportunities for these writers. Um, And so Watershed Lit is just like an umbrella of all those organizations, basically. So besides Poetry Daily, so to speak, some of these projects you've worked on, have there been any events that you were able to uh, attend or participate in? Uh, I assume pre-pandemic, um, like were there writers visiting campus or anything like that? So one cool thing about George Mason is every semester there's visiting writers, which you can take for one credit. And it's like two two authors come a semester to give a workshop, like a four-hour workshop. Um, and so like we've had Ilya Kaminsky, we've had Ed Roberson, we've had Dan Beachy Quick. Oh, we've, we've had a lot of great people and it's so we've had Joan Kane like Cole Swenson I'm like trying to think of all the poets that we had like it's it's so cool and like also what's cool about it is like we'll read their their books of poetry alongside like them coming that semester so we'll get familiar with how they're they're thinking about poetry and then it's just cool to have like poets we read and admire like dissecting our poems and like giving us advice and like it's a surreal feeling like I (laughs) I just recently did um Palm Beach Poetry Festival um all last week and I had five workshops with Eduardo Corral and it was it was amazing like (laughs) and like doing workshops like that like I I did the watering hole right after Christmas and that was a three-day workshop and I had workshops with Justin Philip Reed and John Murillo. Just like, I feel like the more, like my program and like the, my fellowships and my workshops that I'm doing, like they all just kind of build my, my, my community of writers. Um, And like hearing these people that, that you admire and you read for inspiration say, you know, once you're in my workshop, you're always a student of mine. You can always, you know, come back like, being able to find a mentor, like I didn't mention this earlier, but um, one mentor that I have um, who's really just like, (laughs) he's one of the only, like the first class that I took at George Mason um, that I kind of was like, "Mm, I don't know about this was a translation class. Like we're supposed to take craft seminars. And so on my schedule, it just said craft seminar. And I didn't know what the craft was until I really showed up or like a couple days before we got an email and it was like translation. And I was like, I speak English. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't speak another language. So like, how could this work? Like kind of thing. And um, Heather Green, who is, she's, she's an amazing person. She's, she's another one of my, my mentors. Um, she's such the way she teaches translation and understanding language and culture is kind of what led me to my book, to writing my book. Like I, I was like, if I'm going to fumble through any language, I'm going to fumble through tomorrow. Like, you know, <laughs> 
And so from there, I like translated these ancient Chamorro folk songs, but like there aren't a lot of people that I know that speak Chamorro or that can help me and can help me like figure out these ideas. So on Twitter, I found a poet, uh, Craig Santos Perez, and he is a Chamorro poet. He works at University of Hawaii. Um, And I just sent him a message on Twitter and I was like, you know, hello, like I'm Chamorro, like... (laughs) I really need help. There aren't really many examples and a lot of things because, you know, this culture comes from oral tradition. Like it was never written down. It's just passed on and told it's hearsay. And so it's hard, you know, it's hard to translate things that don't exist or that are just like, you know, this is might've been what was said. And so he, he's really helped me. And when I went on my trip, I spent a week in Hawaii and I visited him in Hawaii and he spoke with me and talked to me and 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 still to this day, like reaches out to me and helps me, and it's great. Um, and he has like five books of poetry. He's great. And so I think it's so important to find those mentors. And I found them in a lot of really strange ways. Like I said, Twitter, like you know, just workshops, friends from workshops, like get starting group messages from poets that you meet places. Like having those connections is really important. Even just like us, like I have people that know I'm a poet. If they see a contest or something like that, they'll send it to me. Like, you know, stuff like that. That's what I've been focusing on this last year. It's like really as I'm leaving my MFA, just making sure I'm leaving with that community of writers that can still support me when I'm done with my MFA. That's great. Um, And let me just say, Danielle, I think it sounds like you have fully taken advantage of your three years. (laughs) I really have. I really have. And I said that when I first, like I, I, I said to myself, because you know, undergrad, undergrad, you're never really super focused. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking for myself. Like I did a lot in undergrad, but also like, you know, I graduated. Like, has anyone looked at my GPA? No. Like, you know, but I was very intentional. I was like, if I'm going to go back to school, I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to really invest my all into it and get the most that I can. Because this is like, when you think about it, I'm given three years to just right to my heart's content to explore, to ask questions, to research. And it's like this institution, which is so new to me, like an institution in general, that's, that's willing to be there and support me. I've never really had that. And so for them to be like, apply for this, you know, do this, like this could help you and point me into these different directions. That's really going to truly help me in my journey as a writer. Like it's been, George Mason has been so instrumental in that. And I've really, uh, yeah, I've, I've used it to its extent. <laughs> well, I usually end interviews asking the guests to give any advice to listeners thinking about MFAs, thinking about George Mason. Um, that in and of itself sounds like fantastic advice to just take full advantage of the time. If you're able to find a program, especially one that will pay you for your time um, in the program, to just take full advantage of all the resources and all the opportunities you can. Anything else you want to um, say? Last word? I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to write it because sometimes I let things sit in my head and stay there for a long time because I'm afraid to write it. And then the moment I write it, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, one, I feel better. Two, this is a great piece of art. Like, I'm glad this exists. So I would just say write it. I love it. Thank you so much for being here, chatting with me, reading your poetry. I loved it all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 